Good evening, everybody. Hope everybody had a good weekend, a good day of worship, and ready for the work day. Just want to remind everybody, if you got uh, prayer requests, put them in the comments, and we'll definitely pray for those. And if you got questions that arise from any of these Bible studies, if you'll put them in the comments, and we'll try to answer those as we can get to them. Uh, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18, 18 through 29, the letter to the church in Thyatira. So I'm going to say a prayer, and we will uh, we will get started. Father, we come to you tonight. Thank you for this opportunity we have to use this technology to study your word and to share it with those who are listening. And pray, Father, that it would be encouraging to us and that it would be enlightening, and more importantly, that it would draw the lost to Christ and cause the saved to be obedient to the things of Christ. And Lord, just help us as we study this book that we would have uh, insight and we would have um, the ability to understand and comprehend your word and that it would change the way we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And again, just a reminder about the uh, podcast. It's going to be on the podcast as well. Uh, so you can go and find that anywhere podcasts are available and like it. It's RK Ministries and share it. And it also be here, obviously, on Facebook Live. So let's, let's just jump into the letter to Thyatira, uh, verses 18 through 29. We'll, uh, we'll read the text and then we'll, we'll come back and chat about it just a little bit. And so the Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the church will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to uh, your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold these, this teaching, who have not learned what, she, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay, any, uh, lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my, my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." 
All right, let's begin with some introductory matter on this church of Thyatira. If you remember, we're going, we're going up the Aegean coast. We're on the west side of Turkey, on the Aegean Sea, toward the Aegean Sea. And we're on this postal trade route that kind of makes a semicircle or a U-shape. And we've already encountered the first three churches in this seven-church um, path. And so we, we are moving inland now. We're, we're, at the, we're at the peak, the crest northward, and we're moving inland. So Thyatira is located about 40 miles southeast of um, Pergamum. So if you go up to Pergamum and you go in, uh, you go east from the Aegean and uh, take a southwardly trajectory, you'll come to uh, this city known as Thyatiris around the Lycus Valley uh, area there. And here's what one uh, commentator, uh, Colin Hermer, uh, said about Thyatira as it relates to their prominence, I guess, in the area. Like all the cities, they are they're a prominent place. They're on this major trade route, but Thyatira is probably the less known and less important of all the cities that we will encounter. And here's what he writes about it. Uh, this letter, in particular, is the longest and most difficult of the seven letters in, uh, in, its, in, addressing to, in its address to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. Now, don't, don't, although it may be less known and less remarkable and less important than some of the other cities that we read about, it still is a prominent place because of the nature of this trade route that it, that it is on, and it will have a lot of visitors, and it had probably as many or more trade guilds than some of the cities we've already talked about, and we also know that the reach of the trade from Thyatira had already uh, expanded, uh, you know, well beyond its borders. One of the evidence of that is Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is there, um, and he meets this lady called Lydia, and Lydia is a um, a worker in fine linen, a dyer of purple linen, and uh, she's her home is in Thyatira. And so Paul, on his missionary journeys, encounters this lady. Uh, and so we know that Thyatira's exports, at least, uh, that they, were, they were known already in the first century as Paul was on his missionary journeys. And they, there were a large number of trade guilds in uh, Thyatira. And you, you, you remember, as we've been, if, if you do remember, as we've been talking about these cities, and the culture and, and the impact that the culture has on the church in the first century is every one of these cities had trade guilds. And in order for a person to be a part of that trade or to be a part of the, uh, the occupations that those trades represented, they had to be members of this these trade guilds. And these trade guilds always had a patron deity, a uh, false god and uh, uh, the Greek Greek Roman God that was associated with them, and part of the requirements of the minimum requirements of being a member of these trade guilds would be that you would participate in the 
uh, pagan festivals that the trade guilds would put on. And those festivals included eating meat that had been sacrificed to those idols. And it included, uh, at a minimum, you know, acknowledging and worshiping uh, to some degree uh, these, these pagan deities. And these festivals almost always included some aspect of temple prostitution or what we all read in the Bible here is sexual immorality that was going on. So you can see the pressures on the church from these outside agencies and what kind of difficulty, economic difficulty would put on believers who would not bow the knee to these deities and would not participate in worshiping these false gods because for the Christian there is only one God and the, the, that God is manifest in the person Jesus Christ. So that would limit their ability to be a part of these trade guilds and that would limit their ability to uh, provide an income for their, for their families. And so it would, be, it would be a tough place for Christians to work and live and exist. And not to mention, while well, Thyatira, there's not a whole lot about the emperor cult there, but there is, there is some scant evidence that the emperor cult was there. And we know that the emperor cult was, was part of the social norm of the first century church. So you know that aspect of emperor worship was there. Uh, as well, so you had those outside forces that were impacting the church in in Thyatira. As a matter of fact, the 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 patron god of Thyatira, and, and hence the patron god of all the the guilds that would have been there, was uh, a god that was associated with Apollos, the sun god, the the Greek sun god. Tyremnus, I think, is the uh, is the uh, way you pronounce the, the Roman uh, equivalent to that. And so they would be required to, uh, the, those who would be part of the guild would be required to, to participate in these festivals honoring this particular uh, god. Now, just a list of the guilds. This is not an a, a all-inclusive list, but this is a, a list of those that have been found by archaeological evidence anyway. They're related to Thyatira. They're wool makers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, uh, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smith. And of course the Lord kind of keys in on the bronze smith in one aspect of his identification of himself in this introductory part of this letter. And so if anyone wanted to participate in any of those occupations, they'd have to be part of these guilds. And that would cause some difficulty for those who were Christians. So the letter breaks down like most of the letters do. There is an introduction of the speaker, the one who is giving the letter, Jesus Christ, and he uses some aspect of the of the. Uh, vision in chapter 1 to identify himself and it usually has something to do with what's going on in the church or in that in that cultural context and where the, ch the church finds itself and then there's a commendation in this case there's a criticism following the commendation uh, and there is the promise at, at the end to those who overcome so uh, in the introduction verse 18 uh, 
we read, and to the angel of the churches of the church in Thyatira. And again, remember we talked about this angel, literally angelos in the Greek, messenger. Uh, people look at it different ways, either an angelic messenger who's assigned to this church, a supernatural angelic being assigned to the church, or uh, the literal messenger to the church, as in the under-shepherd, the pastor, the elder, overseer. Uh, my view is it probably is more the overseer, elder aspect, the literal human pastor of the church because Christ uh, walks among them and, and, and holds these churches in, in his hands, hold these elders uh, in, in his hands, if you will. So, uh, at least in my opinion, I think that's who it's addressed to. Then he gives the description of himself to the words of the Son of God. And again, th this is important because uh, when we think about these deities that we just talked about, Apollo, uh, the Romans would look at Apollo as the incarnation, um, if you will, of Caesar or the emperor. Now, the emperor was the incarnation of Caesar, so it had this aspect of the sun. Caesar was the sons of the son of the gods, uh, if you will. So Christ, in this description, is definitely coming at this idea uh, as as the people look at these these deities as sons of gods, if you will, and the emperors as sons of God. And Christ is ultimately telling the church that there is only one true and living God, and that there is only one. Uh, Son of God, and that Son is Jesus Christ. And then he says, uh, he describes himself as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and you find that in verse 14 in chapter 1, and one who has feet who are like burnished bronze, and again, that's in verse 15 in chapter 1. And this, this, this flaming fire in his eyes, again, all, all of this is, uh, that is an illusion all the way back to Daniel and Daniel's vision of the uh, the ancient of days. So in one sense, this is going all the way back to tie into the deity of Jesus Christ, associating de Jesus with God the Father, if you will, uh, in Daniel chapter 10 through 12. And it also has to do with this idea of his piercing, judging gaze, if you will. Uh, there's nothing that escapes his vision. He sees all. Uh, we'll see, I think, the same uh, imagery later on in the book of Revelation, maybe around chapter 19. But anyway, it has to do with God's piercing gauge. There's nothing that escapes his gauge. Hence, this phrase that we always see in these letters, I know your works, which we'll read about in a moment. And then we have this uh, burnished bronze, which, again... Uh, maybe strikes a blow at some of the metal workers that are there because a lot of what they do in 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 the metal work is to make these idols uh so it could be that but probably more more about the power and the strength of god in opposition to the so-called power and authority and strength of the spirit of the age or the rulers of that particular day so jesus is saying to this church in the midst of their struggle Hey, there's only one God, and there's only one Son of God, and I am Him, he says. And there's only one authority who has power uh, in this world, and that is Christ. And, of course, all of this speaks to the, 
the view that we're taking of Revelation, and we're taking not only Revelation, but the entirety of the kingdom of God, this aspect that the, there is the kingdom now concept, that Jesus is enthroned now in this moment. Uh, we don't have to wait till a time when he's going to come back and establish a throne on earth. Jesus is already enthroned in the heavenlies. He already rules the nations, right? And uh, so he's working out that rule in amongst his church as his emissaries in this, in this world. So Jesus is enthroned in this moment. And he rules with authority in this moment. And he's working out his plan among the nations. And that parallels with things that we already know in Scripture. On Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Romans. In Romans, we had not got there yet. We're in chapter 8 right now. But we'll get to chapter 13. And chapter 13 is going to remind us that every authority that is in position in this world is there only because God has ordained it to be there. So God, in that sense, even now, is in control of all the authorities that are in uh, this world. Now, I know that raises more questions for us, but suffice it to say, we need, we need to understand that even though we may not agree with the authorities that are in place, we may not understand why some authorities are in the place they are, that God ultimately understands exactly what he's doing and how he's using these authorities to accomplish his purpose and his decree uh, in this world to get us to the place of the culmination of the age when Christ returns Again, so even then, even in that, we know that God is in control. He reigns right now. Now is the time of the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. And one day, you and I will be in his presence as he is seated on the heavenly throne because the new Jerusalem will come down in earth and heaven will become one place. And we will be with our God and he will be, he will be our God as we are his, his people. And that will be the ultimate fulfillment of this reign but he's reigning right now nonetheless in this world and so jesus describes himself in that way to the church in light of what he's about to say to the church in particular i think about the struggle they're facing and the criticism that he has for them and so with the familiar phrase in verse 19 i know your works and again i always say this probably but it's worth reminding ourselves that's both that's both both encouraging and scary it's encouraging because God knows wherever you are, whatever's going on, whatever the circumstance, he knows. He hadn't taken him by surprise. He understands where you are in life, what your difficulty is, or what your status is in life. He knows. And we can find comfort in that, that he knows. But the other side of the scary part of it is he knows our works. He knows not only the good of our works, he also knows the bad of our works. And there's nothing that can escape this piercing flaming gaze that God has. You think you, you might think you can hide things from some people and you can, you can hide some things from some people, uh, but you can hide nothing from God. He knows your works. And then he gives them this commendation. This is the good thing that the Lord knows about them. And there uh, looks like four commendations that he speaks to them. One, he says, I know your love. Now we, we've seen this aspect of love in relation to church over in Ephesus, you remember. Uh, he gave Ephesus a commendation in the first letter that they uh, were faithful to stand against false doctrine, and they wouldn't put up 
with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, if you remember. And we've seen those Nicolaitans a couple of times, at least in these passages. And what the Nicolaitans believed were akin, is akin to what Jezebel believes here in this passage and what the Balaam was doing and, and encouraging uh, Christians to do in, in uh, the passage we read about Balaam. So all of these are kind of linked together, I think, pointing to the same uh, idea of compromise uh, in, in the church and those at least uh, facilitating or trying to encourage people to compromise. But Ephesus, the Lord's, the Lord's charge to them was that you've lost your first love. You, you, haven't, you, ha- you have forgotten that first love. It's, even though you are, you are staunch on doctrine, you've forgotten the purpose that God had called you to, to love the brethren and to love the world in the sense that you carry the gospel to the world. Well, for Thyatira, the Lord says, I know your love and I know your faith. They hadn't lost their first love. They hadn't waned in what God had asked them to do. Uh, they, 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 he, he understood their love for one another, their love, love for the kingdom, their love for uh, sharing the gospel. And he understood their faith. He saw their faithfulness to him in light of the circumstances that were around, him, around them. And their service, and and someone said that the first two in this passage are the motives of Christian activity, love and faith. The reason we do the things that we do is because of our love for God, our faith in God, and probably our faith in God that facilitates our love uh, for God. And those are the motives for why we do what we do as believers. And then the second two that are mentioned here, service and patient endurance, they are the result of this faith and love that we have in Christ Jesus. So because of their faith and love in Christ, they served him in the community in which God had planted them, and they patiently endured. You remember in the introduction, uh, we trace that phrase throughout Revelation, and we see it uh, quite often uh, in, in the first part of Revelation, uh, in, in the letters to the churches, and then we also see it a couple times when we get into the visions, the, the, the latter visions that we'll read about, in particular, I believe, in uh, chapter 13, 14, where it talks about us being called to this patient endurance. And so, again, it speaks to the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And the perseverance of the saints, this patient endurance, is evidence that we are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ because we continue in our love and our faith and our service to the Lord in spite of the circumstances that we see around us in this world, like the first century church here in Thyatira. And then he commends them again. It says that your latter works exceed the first. Again, unlike Ephesus, where they, they had lost that first love. They kind of waned in the mission and the purpose. Not Thyatira. They're, they're, they were doing more now uh, when Jesus writes this letter than they were doing at the beginning. They were increasing in their love and faith and service and patient endurance. And should uh, hopefully that would be uh, you know the, the testimony for every believer and for every church that we continue to increase in what we do for the kingdom of God in, in the intensity and the vigor uh, that we, we love and serve in faith for the kingdom of God. And that was so of Thyatira. 
But just like many of the other churches, they were not a perfect church and they had some issues, uh, just like most churches today. And so the Lord brings them this criticism, which is the bulk of this letter, to be honest with you. Uh, is this criticism that he has. And so the criticism that the Lord has, the negative things that he sees going on in the churches, and begin in verse 20. Verse 20 he says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, the first thing we got to deal with is the aspect of Jezebel, right? Obviously, that is a name that Christians would be familiar with, people, of, students of the Bible would be familiar with, because we've seen it in the Old Testament, you know, in First uh, and Second Kings, we read about Ahab and Jezebel, you know, we have Elijah on Mount Carmel, and the great battle between the prophets of Baal and and Elijah, the prophet of the one true and living God. And so Jezebel in that context in the Old Testament was one who led Israel into idol worship. They worshiped false god into sexual immorality that was associated with the worship of Baal and, the fault, and, the, and that false god. So Jezebel led the children of Israel away, as it were, into prostitution uh, into infidelity in the sense of they, 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 they cheated on God, if you will. Uh, they had this covenant relationship with God and they had abandoned that faith and that relationship to practice this pagan uh, worship of this pagan deity, which was no deity at all. And so that's the illusion. And we know that Jezebel perverted Israel in that sense. And so much so that uh, God, God ultimately brought judgment on uh, Jezebel and uh, she was, if my memory serves me correctly, flung out of a window and uh, landed on the ground and her hands and feet were the only thing that were left that the dogs didn't eat, maybe her head. But uh, it was a gruesome end to Jezebel. But the main point about Jezebel, and there's this thread throughout these letters. You had the Nicolaitans, we have, we've had Balaam, and we have Jezebel uh, in these letters to this point, and all of them have something in common. There may be a little nuance in what they believe. The Nicolaitans probably were more Gnostic in their understanding, but that thread may have, may have uh, permeated all three of these uh, symbolic people or symbolic groups that uh, Jesus used in these letters that Gnosticism would say, hey, the flesh is bad, the spirit is good, so whatever you do in the flesh, uh, you know, is immaterial. You know, the flesh can do whatever it wants to do because it's immaterial. And, and so in that sense, some people have even uh, said that, hey, that may be what Jezebel was teaching, that, you know, these idols, in a sense, these idols are nothing. The, these the, this meat, the sacrifice to these idols are nothing because the idols are nothing. So it, it's no big deal for you to go and participate and give the minimum requirement to be in these guilds to compromise in that little bit of way to offer just this little pinch of incense to, to Caesar. It, it wouldn't, it's no big deal because that's all temporal fleshly stuff and it doesn't matter because you know, you know the one true and living God. So it's okay to, to, to give in a little bit to get along 
uh, in this world and in this life. And so Jezebel, at a, at a minimum, she was leading people into spiritual uh spiritual prostitution if you will not in the sense that they were they they were they were going away from god and they were prostituting themselves with this pagan worship uh idolatry that uh was going on and associated with these trade guilds and so that's probably the connection now the 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 Another important aspect to this is we've talked about these trade guilds and the pressure that was on the outside from these trade guilds. We've seen already in the last letter there's pressure from the Jews in that area against Christianity. So the, the church had pressure from the outside to conform in one way from the guilds and from the emperor worship to conform to the spirit of the age. From the Jews, it was more of a of a trying to destroy the church from the outside uh, by ratting them out, if you will, to the emperor. And then the more another egregious part of this is pressure from the inside, whereas that, uh, Ephesus. They didn't tolerate false doctrine. They had sound doctrine. They tested every teacher and every spirit that came into them, and they wouldn't put up with this false doctrine. Here in Thyatira, they had people who were tolerating these false teachers who had slipped into uh, the church, these these wolves that had come in in sheep's clothing. And just by the virtue of the name, you know, there have been many ideas of who this Jezebel may be in the church um, whether it was a, a prophet, the, I think a Sibylus, uh, was a prophet in a prophetess in that day associated with these pagan deities that, uh, somebody even said she may have lived outside the gate, but it doesn't necessarily make sense that that person would come into this church, a completely pagan person. This is probably someone who was a prominent woman, a prominent figure in the church some have even suggested that it may have been uh you know the wife of uh one of the the leaders of the church or just a prominent woman in the church who was leading these people astray some have even even said it may have been uh, lydia herself who was this jezebel you know and you might can make an argument from that just because of her because of her uh association probably with trade guilds at least when Paul met her but that that is no that is no guarantee or, or or solid proof that she continued to practice in these things once she came to faith in Christ and so it probably is just is a figure a prominent woman in this church who has who has begun to propagate this idea that it's okay to compromise with the spirit of this age. It's okay to give in and celebrate and participate in these feasts in order for you to get along in society. So at a minimum, this lady is bringing uh, compromise to the church. And the, the, the bigger issue is, while there are faithful people who are faithful in their service, who patiently endure, they're tolerating this. They're not doing anything about it. So again, they are culpable in a sense for tolerating uh, this false doctrine and this, this false teacher in the church. And so the Lord calls all of them out uh, for that. And so he goes on to uh, with this uh, concept of Jezebel. 
She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And again, that goes back to the theme we've been talking about, and it, and it is undoubtedly associated with these trade guilds and the feasts that they would put on uh, in their guild. And to be, again, to be a part of that guild, you would have to participate at a minimum, participate in these festivals that they would put on in honor of this patron deity that they worshipped in this city and that was associated with their guild. And while... You know, some may say, hey, no big deal. Jesus has a completely different idea about this compromising in this way, that it is a very big deal. And it is called uh, a seduction of the servants of the Lord, and it ought not to be uh, tolerated. And so he gives uh, verse 21. I gave her time to repent. And I couldn't help but think about that. And I don't know where you, you, where you guys are in church. And uh, maybe it's all our church folks watching tonight. But uh, whoever, whoever listens to this, you may not be in the same place we are. But, uh, you know, we, we are in, uh, we're going through Jonah in Sunday school the last couple of weeks. And it amazes me that, you know, the story of Jonah, God sends Jonah to Nineveh to preach uh, or to warn them about judgments that's to come and give them opportunity to repent. That, that's the kind of God that we serve. Now, Jonah wasn't happy about that because he despised the Ninevites and uh, he, didn't, he didn't want to go and he didn't want to share the message because he knew that God was a gracious God who relented from, from disaster and he knew that if they repented, God would not destroy them. But even in this situation, God is telling this lady in this church that he's given ample opportunity for her to repent. Now, I don't know everything I need to understand about how he done that. I just know that God says he did that. And isn't that the way it is with us today? How, how many years removed are we from Jesus Christ walking on this earth and dying on the cross for our sin? And, you know, over 2,000 years removed from that, and God still tarries in his coming, and he still tarries in the culmination of this age. So that, I think, people will have an opportunity to repent. Isn't that kind of what Peter alludes to when people in the first century even are, are, are questioning Peter about the validity of Christ's return? You know, why hadn't he returned yet? You know, it's been, hey, it's been a few years. Why hadn't he come back yet? And Peter says that God's not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we serve a God who, who gives ample opportunity for men to repent. So when God brings judgment, it's not because men hadn't had an opportunity to repent and believe in God and the promise of God and the person of Jesus Christ is because they have refused to repent. And so God has given her ample time to repent. But she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. And again, sexual immorality, probably in a literal sense, the trade guilds and their festival practices and worship. But you can't help but think about how the Lord uses that picture is it related to Israel in the Old Testament and how they had played the harlot in the sense that they had they had left their their 
the worship of God and followed after these pagan idols. So this, in some way, that has to be symbolic of this idea of her leading these people and her herself practicing in this pagan worship of the day. You know, and the question that, that has to come to our our mind is, how does that relate to us today, right? Because we still, there still is a principality and powers that, that, and the ruler of this world, Satan, that is, is roaming around trying to um, pervert and everything that God's doing and trying to destroy as many lives as he can destroy. And then here we are as the church in the midst of that. And we see the debauchery that is all around us today in this world. So where is our line? Where, where, where is it that we stand and say, no further? We're not going to go any further. We're not going to tolerate this anymore like these people in Thyatira had tolerated Jezebel. Where is the line that says we're going to stand up for the truth of God and we're not going to allow people to come into the church and bring false teaching and lead us astray from the principles and truth of God's word. And here in this country as an American where I have a right to redress the government, where I have a right to vote in people who think like I think and to govern this land and, and this state and, and that we live in, where where's my line? Where When am I going to stand up and say, hey, this is the truth of God's word. We're not backing down from this truth. We are here to make disciples of all nations, including the nation called America. We are here to change the world by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which implies that when men come to faith in Christ, that their lives are changed. And when their lives change, they impact the world around them. You can't help but see that and one of the best pictures of that is in the book of Acts when Paul goes to, uh, I believe it was in Ephesus where he, where he caused a riot and he was about to, to, about to be run out uh, because it so impacted, the gospel so impacted the culture. And uh, another another story I remember remember about Paul was whenever these these um, trade guilds, the dealers in in silver, whenever uh, he began to share the gospel of Christ with the with the citizens, and their hearts changed. They quit buying these idols. They quit participating in this pagan worship, and it began to impact the the economy of that city that they lived in. And when it began to impact the the economy, those in that that trade guild, those silversmiths, they, they began to riot and, and uh, cause, cause problems for Paul. So the point is, I don't know why people think that we, that we it, why it is a surprise to people that Christians want to see the world come to faith in Christ and be obedient to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and be obedient to the truths of God's word. That's ultimately what God has called us to do is to make disciples of pantata ethnos, all people groups all over this world. And the reality is, as we've already said, that Christ is in control right now. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And he has demanded every nation to come under his authority even now. Uh, all you got to do is read Psalm number 2, which is alluded to at the end of this chapter here. So, you know, don't, as a believer, don't fret about people. You know, the catchphrase of our day right now is, is Christian nationalism, right? 
And the negative side of that is, hey, they want to impose a Christian government. Well, that's not the reality. The reality is for Christians, at least true Christians is, we're not necessarily worried about imposing a Christian government. What we are worried about is imposing or sharing the gospel with this world and seeing every man, woman, and child come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Christianity will naturally influence how a land is governed and how people live. It will impact the laws and the and the uh, morals and the social norms and mores of a society when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly Exactly what we're all about is seeing every man, woman, and child come to faith in Christ because there is a judgment day coming when every person will stand before God. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, then you will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. That's the reality for every human being in this world. And the only hope is that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we as Christians, why would we not stand up for the values and truths of God's word when it impacts our society. Why would we stand by and let people who call themselves Christians compromise with the depravity that's going on in this world? Why would we stand by and say, hey, it's okay if you have a uh, have leaders that perpetrate this idea that we can kill babies in the womb? Why would we stand by for those things? Why would we not stand up and say, God is against that and we are against that and we don't need to do that? in our society why wouldn't we stand up against those who in this world who are who are falling head over heels with this idea of transgenderism it's gone far beyond the idea of somebody just dressing up like somebody in a in a different uh, of another sex it's gone to the place where if our babies make it out of the womb that they are mutilating them after they come out of the womb and this is not adults they're mutilating it's children that they're mutilating and parents who are part of that are culpable in the depravity that they're perpetrating on these children by mutilating their bodies when it, why wouldn't we as Christians stand up and say No, that's not what uh, God stands for, and we're not going to stand for it either. And why would we as Christians deny the reality of the history of the founding of this particular nation? America is not the promised land. Americans are not God's chosen people. But by golly, the history of this nation is that it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And why wouldn't Christians continue to want a nation that was founded on such principles to continue to live out those principles in this world? Understanding you cannot legislate morality and you cannot legislate people into the kingdom of God, but you and I need to still stand firm on the principles of God's word and not tolerate people like this Jezebel in this letter in this church to Thyatira. So coming back to this letter, she refused to repent of her sexual immorality there in verse 21. And so, verse 22, the Lord says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. And again, th- this is judgment coming to her because of her false teaching. And we have to have a caveat here. Or two things I think we need to think about. All sickness that is in this world is a result of sin in general. When Adam and Eve fell, the curse came upon the earth. 
and everything changed and sickness and disease is associated with the idea that sin came into this world and we live in a foreign creation. Secondly, not every sin is associated with the judgment of God in, in particular on the life of people. And one of the best examples of that is when the, blind, the, the man that was born blind, Jesus healed the man that was born blind, and the, the, the religious leaders or people came to Jesus and says, why was this man born, or who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents or him? Which is an interesting statement in and of itself. But Jesus said, neither. This man was born blind so that the will of God would, would come to be and God would be glorified. So sometimes God uses sickness to bring about his glory. So not every sin is associated with judgment on a particular, or not every sickness is associated with judgment against sin in a person's life. But sometimes sickness is a direct result of God's judging sin. We see that in a couple of places clearly in the New Testament. If you look at Romans chapter 1, uh, when Paul talks about those that God turned over to a debased mind, kind of like those in our day that have been turned over to a debased mind, they are, they are suffering the judgment of God just by the fact that God has turned them over to a debased mind, and sometimes that leads to sickness and illness in their bodies. Secondly, even in the church, when God judges sin amongst those who call themselves followers of Christ in the church of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, Paul chastises this church because of the way they're coming to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And he says to them that some of you are sick and some of you have died because of the sinful way you've come to the Lord's Supper. So the reality is that God sometimes uses sickness as a form of judgment in the life of people. And in this case, he uses this sickness in the life of this lady that is identified as Jezebel. And he throws her on this sick bed, if you will. And, you know, I don't know if there's pushing it too far to think that this is this contrast of what she would have think, thought may have been a, a normalized, pleasurable thing to do to participate in these pagan worships which included sexual immorality. And by contrast, God is judging her by not throwing her on this that bed of sex, but on the bed of sickness. And then he goes on to say that I will throw into great uh, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. And then he says in verse 23, the first part, I will strike her children dead. Now, what's the distinction between those two? It could be this, not saying that this is absolute, but this is probably what is going on here. There may have been some there who had been entertaining those who had committed adultery with her, though they were entertaining these teachings and these doctrines, and maybe had had uh, played with this idea just a little bit. But God says these people still have an opportunity to repent. If they repent 
then no judgment is going to come to them. But if they continue in unrepentance and continue in this life of sinfulness, then there will, they will be cast into tribulation. So tribulation, persecution upon them is, it will be the form of judgment that God brings. And then he had these children he's going to strike dead. And so these are probably those who had gone full in. They were all in with this teaching. They may have been celebrating this teaching, may have been helping her propagate this teaching in amongst the church there in Thyatira. And so God's judgment for them is death. And of course, the ultimate judgment for every sinner outside of a relationship with Christ is death, right? Because sin brings death. That is the wages of sin. What we earn when we sin is death. And we see that all around us, don't we? Um, Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 4. Death reigned when sin came into the world. Uh, so death still reigns today in the sense that every human being, one out of one human beings will die unless the Lord comes back again. Uh, that's something you don't have to worry about. It's a given. If the Lord tarries, all of us are going to die. What you need to worry about is, am I ready for that day when I do die? Or am I ready for that day when the Lord comes again? So these people will find themselves under the judgment of God because of this sinful activity in the church in their in their life, and then Lord the Lord makes a declaration um, at the end of verse twenty three, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And now, that, you know, God's the judge of all the earth, and he will do what is right. His judgment is right and just. I can't look into everybody's heart. I can't see their motives. I can't know everything that goes on inside their heart, but God does. God sees into the mind and heart of every human being. So when he gives judgment, when he passes judgment, when he casts judgment, it is always right and it is always righteous. And you and I need to understand that judgment is always according to works. Always judgment is according to works. Even when the Bible talks about Christians standing before the judgment seat of Christ, we are judged based on the things that we have done. Right? Those things that are wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. Those things that are gold and precious stones, those things we will be rewarded for. So judgment is always based on works. Go all the way to the end of Revelation in chapter 20. What happens at the great white throne judgment whenever the Lord raises the rest of the dead who stand before him in judgment? The Bible says that books were open, and in those books contain everything that every person has ever done, and every human being is judged according to what is written in those books. And the sad reality is what is written in those books will always condemn us. It will always find us wanting. We will be under the condemnation and wrath of God because of what is written in those books. But praise be to the Lord, there's another book that's open, and it's called the Book of Life. And the Bible says that those whose names were not found in that Book of Life were cast into the lake of fire. And the opposite of that is true. Those whose names are found in that book of life are not cast into the lake of fire. So the question becomes, how do I make sure my name is found in the book of life? Well, the short answer to that is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Because judgment is coming, and all of us will stand before God. And there's times in this world where God brings judgment in the temporal, in the here and now. He judges every Christian who strays, right? 
Doesn't he tell us that in Hebrews? Those whom I, I chasten those whom I love. He disciplines us. That's a part of and an act of judgment in the sense that we have strayed from where God has intended for us to be and God chastens us to bring us back to where we ought to be uh, in our lives. And he uses that to sanctify us and lead us uh, into obedience. So um, you and I need to understand that God's serious about sin. He's going to judge sin in every aspect. He's judged sin ultimately in Jesus Christ. So you and I, if we will place our faith in Christ Jesus, can understand that we will not be held accountable for the guilt of our sin in the sense of eternal damnation because God has dealt with it in Jesus Christ. All we have to do is repent and believe. And when we do that, God changes us. He changes who we are on the inside so that our desire then is to follow after the things of God, to be obedient to the precepts of God's word and to be faithful to what God has called us to do and to be. And so we get to verse 24 where the Lord says to all those in Thyatira who have not compromised, he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, and again, probably talking about these pagan rituals and feasts and the sexual immorality and this debauchery that's going on in the first century as it relates to all of that aspect of these trade guilds. They've not given in to these teachings of Jezebel. He says, To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So in other words, patiently endure. Hold on to the end until I come, the Lord is saying. And again, I can't help but point out this fact that that is the theme of Revelation is, hey, God is on his throne. God is in control. He has decreed the beginning and the end. He's working out this plan of redemption in this world right now. For those who are believers in this world, there is tribulation and persecution. Uh, we talked about that this morning in, in uh, Romans, even in Romans chapter 8, in that great chapter of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul also says in that chapter in the section we were in today that, hey, uh, we, we will have this inheritance that God give, gives us uh, so long as we uh, suffer like he did. So again, the Bible is full of this idea that there is suffering for believers and he's called us to patiently endure until the end. We've already seen that in one church, right? I think it was Smyrna. He said to them that you, some of you are going to be put in prison and some of you are going to die. I'm calling you to be faithful even unto death. And that's what he's talking about here. The perseverance of the saints. We have been, we, we, the perseverance of the saints is evidence that we are followers of Christ. When we persevere in faithfulness, we persevere in obedience to the Lord, even to the end, in the, even in the face of tribulation and persecution. And so that's what the Lord's calling this church to do. Hold on. Hang in there till I come. It may be bad, it may be bleak, but I'm in control. And I am working this out. And you are victorious in me. And so he gives them the promise, verses 26 through 29. You, you remember the promise had this pattern. 
he who hears what the Spirit is saying to the churches, or he who has the ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he says to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. First three letters, it was exactly the same. This fourth letter, it's been inverted. Now, there's nothing necessarily really to make out of that other than it's just a change that took place in these letters when the Lord was giving this out. But it, this, the elements are still there. To the one who conquers, you remember that nikao uh, having to do with victor or overcomer. Uh, John chapter, First John chapter 5, uh, write that down every place you see that word and go back and see what it means to be an overcomer. We talked about that in the, in the introduction and in the first letter uh, as we saw it there. To the one who conquers and overcomes, who, listen, who keeps my works until the end. Again, that is this element of perseverance. It's not the keeping of the works that makes you the conqueror. It's because you are the conqueror in Christ Jesus, because you've come to faith in Christ Jesus. You've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's because of the regenerative work that God has done in you that you will keep his works until the end. But underlying this is this theological theme of the perseverance of the saint. That's what this book is all about. Hang in there. Persevere. I am in control. See who I am. I am on my throne. The world is not in control. Although sometimes it looks like they are, God is saying, I'm in control. You persevere until the end. So again, this underlying theme of the perseverance of the saints. It says to him, this one who conquers, this one who keeps the works until the end, because again, that's evidence that we are the children of God, that we persevere until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and when as when earthen vessels are uh when earthen pots excuse me are broken in pieces and then again you need to write down psalm chapter 2 right beside that verse because that is an allusion to psalm chapter 2 where god calls all the nations to bow their knee to the sun to kiss the sun lest he be angry with them and it talks about Christ ruling and reigning them uh, the Messiah in that context ruling and reigning over these nations with a rod of iron and so the Lord is saying to those who are believers in Christ you will take part in this authority that has been given to the Messiah you will take part in this authority that's been given, given to Christ by the Father to rule and reign these nations so again this idea of the theme of all nations coming under the authority of Jesus Christ permeates scripture and that's what the kingdom of God is all about, is to make disciples in all of those nations. It is a demand, it is a command that all nations come and bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the gospel is the means by which those nations will be redeemed one person at a time uh, to come and bow before the king. And so, uh, as I've already stated, the verse says, even as I myself have received authority, meaning Jesus Christ has received authority from the Father to reign over these nations with a rod of iron. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. And there's a lot of talk about what the morning star represents in this passage. Some even go all the way back to Satan, right? Lucifer, the shining one over in Isaiah uh, 14. But the reference probably uh, is more 
Uh, I think there's a place in Numbers that talks about Messiah that's associated with Messiah, talking about the morning star. But there's definitely in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, John, uh, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So I think we ought to stay in the context of Revelation to understand, right, what these symbols are. Jesus just told us what the morning star was in Revelation 22 and verse 16. He is the morning star. And so I think that's a reference to Christ himself. What is he going to do? He's going to give them himself. That is ultimately our inheritance. Again, we talked about that in Romans chapter 8 this morning. Our ultimate inheritance is God himself in Christ Jesus. And so Christ is going to give us that inheritance uh, that we have in him, his self, in the new heaven and in the new earth. And, and don't miss this truth in in understanding this book of revelation my my contention is that this book was written to the churches that this book was written to um encourage the church in the first century to patiently endure in the face of tribulation and that everything that we read uh, in these visions that we're about to get into when we get to chapter 4 are really telling the same story, recapitulating the same story over and over again about what God is doing in redemptive history in this world. And each one of them has a spiraling effect in the sense that they're narrowing the focus every single time uh, to uh, get us to the point of the culmination of this particular age, uh, or at least this, they're, 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 they're clearing up the story as we go along, as we unfold these things, and the church is, permeates this. Now, a lot of people, when they get to chapter 4, you don't hear the word church again, right, until you get over there to the, to the end of Revelation. But we have seen this idea, we will see, and I've already alluded to the fact of the church being present in all of these visions that we're going to see in some capacity, in some way, there's a reference uh, to these churches. And even at the end of this book, it's like a bookend. At the end of these books, look what he says. He's, he's who he's talking to. I've given this to the churches. This is a letter. This is a, a prophecy. This is an apocalyptical work to encourage the church of every generation to persevere to the end because we serve the living God who is seated on his throne right now. And then the letter concludes with this idea. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we've talked about that before. I think it's drawing again from the Old Testament. The Lord uses that kind of terminology in the Old Testament. It draws, I think, maybe indirectly, but from the Gospel of John, where John, Jesus is talking in John chapter 6 in particular about those who will hear and be taught. There's some who are going to hear, and there's some who's not going to hear. And that hearing is a work of God in the life of the, the person who hears, who becomes the believer, the one that is drawn to God, the one who will not be cast out. And same thing in John chapter 10 when he talks about those uh, Pharisees, those religious leaders who were not hearing. Uh, it says that my sheep know my voice. They hear me, right? And the, those Pharisees, they wasn't hearing God. They wasn't hearing the voice of the shepherd. Why? Because they were not sheep of his fold. 
And so the hearing is God working in us to cause us to hear and understand these things. As Paul reminds us in another place, uh, again, First in Corinthians, I think it is, that he talks about that these spiritual things cannot be discerned by the fleshly person, by the carnal person, by the person who is outside of a relationship with Christ because they're spiritually discerned. There has to be a regenerate heart. There has to be a, a redeeming work of Christ in us so that we can hear the truth of God's word and we can understand that truth. So again, this ought to be an encouragement to all of us and it can be an encouragement to us in our generation and every generation that may come after us that no matter what the circumstances in this world look like, we can patiently endure because God is on his throne right now. God is in control. He is working out redemption in this world as we speak. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and we are his emissaries in this world. And um, secondly, uh, God God has called all of us to be missionaries in the world that we're in, in the age that we, uh, the age that we are in, and we we are His voice in this world, and we are to continue to proclaim His word. We continue to to make disciples of all people groups in this world. So hopefully, you have a great week this week. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, pass it along to those who need to hear it. Uh, so we'll see you guys uh, next time.